What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. last thing that any special ed teacher wants or any parent of a child with special needs wants is for the situation at school to escalate towards a due process case. That idea is terrifying, am I right? But we all know sometimes those situations do happen. Today I'm interviewing special ed attorney Jennifer Price. She answers a lot of my questions on how to navigate the legal system when it comes to getting our children what they deserve and are entitled to. We talk about tips for both parents and teachers on making sure that those legal rights are upheld. So let's jump into our conversation. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. So what brought you to special education law? Well, I, I've always been a big proponent of education in general, um, and I, but I started out as a prosecutor, and I went from the adult division to the juvenile division, and when I went to the juvenile division, I kept 
hearing moms or listening to moms complain about the schools and, and you know, this, the IEP or, or maybe the juvenile probation officer would talk about, you know, I'll bring that up at the next IEP meeting or I'll let the school know or whoever know about, you know, some of the judge's orders. And that's when I began to think, you know, well, what, what, this sounds like a whole area that I might be interested in where I'm not representing the school because I would talk to other lawyers and they would say, oh, well, you can work like as a, for firms that are representing the school as a solicitor, but I was never really interested in that. So it was really just being a prosecutor in the juvenile division that introduced me to the fact that there's a whole area of law where I can represent the child in special education to where I then began to do some more research and then reach out to some colleagues. And some of them were very nice enough to kind of take me on as a full mentee and, you know, hand walk me through the learning curves of, of everything that I needed to know and give me books and notebooks of information and such. Oh, great. I imagine there's such a need, too. There's so many parents that are in need of great advocacy and support. Yeah. And so that's why it's, you know, you know, the downside is that I learned about it through the negative end of it, if the police are called for various factors. Um but I, I do realize that there's a need because there aren't a lot of us. And I'm in the Pittsburgh metro area, and there still are not a lot of us. I mean, I don't think you need more, many more than two hands to count the number of attorneys that uh, practice special education law. And it's just becoming, you know, more and more unfortunately frequent that a parent is kind of pushed into a corner of having to, you know, seek outside help to make sure that their child is getting what, you know, they legally deserve. I agree. I agree. And some of the main complaints that I hear from parents is that they feel overwhelmed or they feel outnumbered when they're in the IEP meetings and they just don't really know how to start. And because they feel outnumbered, they feel uncomfortable. And that may be the time when they begin to seek outside sources because they just at least want to feel like they're leveling the playing field. Absolutely. Yeah. I I talk a lot about, you know, best practices for the IEP meeting, you know, on this platform and on my blog as well. And kind of always trying to remind teachers too, that when a parent walks into an IEP meeting, it's suddenly this team of adults that's telling them about their kids. And, and, you know, it's just this weird shift of power. And, and if you don't, know the, if you feel like you don't know what's going on, it's uncomfortable to ask questions or you don't want to feel stupid. Right, right. Exactly. It's the the parents feel like they know the, they know what they want, but they may not know how to phrase it. And so maybe because they don't know special terminology or, you know, some of the best practices or some of the legal terminology that could kind of cue everyone in, then yeah, they just feel like, they are overwhelmed. And some of them have said that they feel like the school talks to them like they're dumb. Yeah. I mean, even honestly, I mean, the law is so complicated in this area that as a special education teacher and a board certified behavior analyst, there's a lot of things I don't know. You know, it gets acronyms get complicated and things obviously differ majorly state to state. But even within, you know, different processes, like looking at you know, the transition process, things just kind of keep changing. So I definitely understand how parents feel that way. Yeah. Um, let's take kind of a big, oh, you know, bird's eye view. And obviously this is a super broad question, but let's kind of reviewing the basics. What is a child with a disability legally entitled to for his or her education? 
So I would say just from a, a basic standpoint, um, I'll, I'll certainly start with the notion, which is another a general answer, and then I'll dial in, um, that there, a child would be legally entitled to receive, you know, whatever aids and services that child needs to allow him to, to obtain a meaningful benefit in his education. And I use those two words, meaningful benefit, intentionally, because that tends to be where litigation can fall. Um, what is considered a meaningful benefit? And is is this a meaningful benefit? Um, so, so that's where maybe the school district and parents could disagree? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that a lot of the issues can come down as to, you know, as to what progress looks like. Um, there are a lot of parents that may have aspirations for their child, and maybe their child is making progress, but it's not the progress that they would like to see. Um, but it doesn't. But then courts have said that that doesn't necessarily mean a child isn't making progress. So I think that a lot of the litigation ultimately can come down to the terminology of meaningful benefit and what exactly that means and what exactly that looks like for your child. So what can teams do to clarify what progress looks like? I mean, obviously there's IEP goals, but, you know, going a little bit beyond, is there a way, you know, a broad answer that teams could avoid this by getting more specific on defining progress? Well, I'm a firm believer in data. So I think that not only can there be goals, but then there are you know, the teachers can keep track of, of through data as to what progress has been made. Um, because it might seem as though progress has been made from the teacher standpoint, who's with the child day in, day out. And maybe progress is, but maybe progress is not being made. So if you sort of map it out, a look at that trajectory, then it can provide a visual for everyone to show, you know, if your child has a C at the beginning of the semester and still has a C at the end of the semester, it may not appear as though progress is made. But if you can track along to see, well, um, we had as one of the goals that he's going to be able to pronounce four out of five words correctly. He started with one and now he's at three, you know, progress has been made, even though from a GPA standpoint, his grade point is still a C. Um, he may not have fully met the goal of meeting four out of five, but from the benchmark of one out of five, he still has made some progress. So I'm a firm believer most, in data. Like, that is the most amazing answer that maybe I've ever heard. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a board certified behavior analyst and I preach data all the time. And I know that, you know, it gets, it gets challenging, especially in a busy classroom to consistently take data. But to hear, you know, data can help you, obviously not always, but can help you avoid these situations. And I know, you know, as a former teacher, it's the, the prospect of going into a due process oh, yeah. is kind of terrifying. So if you have data on your side, I always say this, but now a lawyer is saying it, guys, that, you know, data will help you in those situations because at the end of the day, your opinion is is just your opinion. It's the numbers that will show yes. exactly what's going on. Yes. My favorite uh, clients, which we shouldn't have favorite clients, I guess. My favorite <laughs> clients are the parents that come in with stacks of notebooks and papers. And I've kept everything, you know, every single homework, classwork, test, you know, I'm so sorry. They're always apologizing. I'm like, no, <laughs> trust me, you're a lawyer's dream because we want to go through all of that. That's I want more than just your IEP and your evaluation 
evaluation report and the and the report card, right? I mean, I if you have the information to show, I want to read all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So you mentioned, you know, the a, a, a majority or a, a percentage of disagreements are, can come from what progress looks like. Um, what about in terms of what types of supports are needed to make that progress? Do you see a lot of kind of conflict or potential litigation there? In terms of the type of supports needed? Yeah, whether that's paraprofessionals, whether that's, you know, different accommodations within the gen ed or special ed classroom setting. So usually where I see conflict coming in is whether the school feels like they have the resources to actually provide it. Um, so I I have been in meetings where teachers and maybe the principal has agreed or the special ed director has agreed. Yeah, it, w- it would be great to have one-on-one, but we don't have that person available, you know, or we don't have the money to provide that resource. That's generally where I've seen the breakdown in communication, not that they are disagreeing to the service, but maybe that they just don't have the resources to provide the service. And to the extent they do disagree to the service, um, it may be because they feel like whatever they're providing is sufficient. Um, But I would, you know, at that point, I would certainly encourage parents to then look to see, again, what are the goals and what exactly is happening with their current service being provided with the paraprofessional and is that goal really being met or is there any progress being made? Maybe the paraprofessional should be with them more often during the day instead of 30 minutes out of the day, you know, or maybe the paraprofessional needs to uh, do something else, or maybe that is not the right paraprofessional. Maybe they're not certified to do whatever it is you're asking them to do. Yeah, that's a great, I've actually been in that situation, you know, frequently as well on the teacher side of, you know, the school saying, yeah, that would be great. We agree. We just don't have that. And, you know, sometimes as the teacher, I I really often agreed with the parent, like, yes, I agree that I need the support. So what could a parent or potentially even a teacher do? Probably a teacher can't do too much, but in that situation where a school's saying kind of that example, you said like, yeah, we would like to give that. We just don't have it. What is a parent's next move? So I like to direct parents to outside organizations to see if there is an outside organization that can still provide the same resources. And to the extent your the child can get connected with a counselor or some sort of professional in an outside setting, first see if it works in the outside setting. And if it does, then maybe connect with the school to seek permission to have that person come inside the school. Um, because there, depending on where you where you live, there may be a number of resources available to you that can come to your house after hours or, or I'm sorry, after school starts. Um, but maybe test the waters first to see if that, that person or that service is a good fit in the first place and then seek permission for the person to come inside the building. Oh, that's a great suggestion. 
Um, so we already mentioned, you know, data as being something that a teacher can do to kind of make sure that they're upholding a child's legal rights to their education. What are some other, you know, most of my audience is teachers. What are some other things that teachers can do to make sure that they're giving each student everything that they're entitled to? Well, I really like, I, okay. So from, from a teacher standpoint, I really try to see both sides of it. Um, you know, the, I think one issue that comes up that I think is an issue that doesn't really get discussed too much is the fact that, you know, obviously IEP stands for Individualized Education Plan. But when you're in a public school, sometimes teachers want to do sort of a, almost a one-size-fits-all. And so then the problem can arise where you have, you know, the individual the the IEP, and then you have just your generalized approach to teaching. And uh, it's certainly a complaint that I've heard from a number of teachers is, look, I have 25 kids with 20 IEPs, right? So, Yeah, absolutely. And and if everyone has preferential seating, right, somebody's got to sit in the back. I mean, (laughs) so um, so I, I think from a teacher's standpoint, it it really does take a proactive stance and it sounds horrible to put more work on the teachers like they don't have enough to do already, but it really does take a proactive stance to just look to the IEP as to what to do. I mean, I know when I have some of the problems that I've seen with IEPs is that there is no sort of uh, checklist or a roadmap to even help the teachers if an issue arises or if a trigger happens with the child. They don't, the te- if the teacher went to the IEP, the teacher wouldn't even know what to do or how to respond because there's no roadmap in place in the IEP that even informs the teacher as to how to respond. Um, so I would definitely encourage teachers to be very proactive and trying to figure out what exactly can they do if an issue arises, how can they help if an issue arises? And then certainly, of course, go to the IEP, even if in the heat of it, you don't think of going to the IEP to, to figure out how to address the issue. Maybe after the fact, you know, when when it settles down, go to the IEP so that going forward, oh, OK, you know, this was a trigger for the child. Let me make sure that I, you know, do whatever it says to do to to make to address it properly. But again, that also requires being very involved in the IEP creation. Yeah, I know that's, I I kind of preach that a lot as well. You know, it all starts with the IEP, like great data starts with those goals. It's really hard to take goals, data on goals that don't make sense. Um, You know, like when people write like, you know, we'll we'll understand this concept with 80% accuracy. I'm like, what does that mean? And how are you going to take data on that? Yeah. and so kind of what you were referencing at is maybe somewhat of like a crisis plan, like something like that. Is that a little bit what you're referring to with having that path and those steps? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I oh boy, crisis. I hate that word, but yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's a negative word. But yeah, it's kind of like a crisis plan. Um, because I know some of the, some of the things that I have found is that the IEPs will place a heavy focus on the academics portion of it and not really address maybe the social the socialization uh, deficits that may occur, and maybe that child uh, is struggling academically because of depression issues socially related to the social issue, you know. And so, um, so yeah, I would, being actively involved in the IEP and creating a, a crisis plan 
to address the issues would definitely help out, but also being aware that while you're certainly wanting to address this the child address the child's academics the child especially one with an IEP should have a whole child approach um, which would include the socialization you know the behavioral aspects and the academic portion yeah absolutely and then you know when you write that crisis plan or whatever you want to call that that you know plan in the IEP then mom and dad know too it's not a surprise yeah. then when you go through those steps because everyone's talked about it because I can imagine a big disconnect being there of like wait what happened what did you do but if it's all on the table everyone knows kind of what the plan was yes yes and I know here in Pennsylvania um, once something does a blow-up does happen then you need to have a functional behavioral assessment and every state is different that doesn't necessarily require an FBA um, but it's certainly it's, it would kind of be along those same lines of, of having, of having an FBA to see, yeah, what's going to happen going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And you'd rather have, you know, go through the process of doing an FBA and even having some type of backup crisis plan and never use it yes. than, you know, have that meltdown pop up and have no plan in place. Yeah. It's like an insurance clause. <laughs> exactly. Um, so now kind of switching gears and thinking, you know, talking to the parents that listen, what are some red flags that parents can look for in an IEP meeting, in those meetings with teachers and viewing that IEP? Because, you know, parents aren't, parents become special ed experts very quickly um, because a lot of times they have to, but, you know, they, they don't always know all of the acronyms and the lingo and all that. So what are some kind of red flags that parents can keep their eyes out for? Um, so some of the red flags would be the fact that the IEP may not mention, may not address um, the behavioral components, like I mentioned beforehand. Um, or even most recently, I had a client who had uh, emotional disturbance as his primary disability, but I, I, the goal for him was to then keep track and keep his own progress reports as to through, I think like a star chart as to his behavior, which on the one hand is good because it makes him self-aware of when he is behaving in a certain manner. And it can also make him aware of his own triggers to sort of uh, control it and dial it down some. But then the other issue was that it then does not address how the teacher is going to respond. So, eventually the teacher began responding by calling in other people who would then call in the police. And so he would be arrested for different things. Um, so I would say, so that certainly was a red flag for me that all of the burden was placed on the child and there was nothing to empower the teacher to know what to do uh, short of calling the police into the situation. Um, and then, you know, along those same lines, I mentioned the socialization factor. I would go back to that. If you have a child, you know, with autism who is having peer-related issues, um, then that should be in there, not just an awareness, you know, because sometimes I'll see in the IEP that there is mention that maybe he um, is having a hard time making friends or people are responding to him negatively, but then there's nothing in there to address what can be done, you know, uh, or how 
what what can be done to help him with his peer related issues you know yeah what skills does he need to learn to overcome yeah that? <laughs> right right so I think that when the parents read the IEP then and they see that the school has placed an awareness in there then that's enough but it's really not enough if it's not if if it's getting in the way of, of everything else yeah especially I mean if it's, if it's listed in the areas of need then to me, there should be some goal that addresses that then, because we're, we're, we're identifying it as something that the student has a deficit with, then how are we as a school going to support that deficit? Right, right. So it's really just connecting those dots between the area of need and then the goal. And then also, and so then a red flag would be, so one red flag would all, also be that there is no connection, but then the other red flag would be that it's mentioned as a, as a measurable goal, but there's not a way to measure it, right? So they've kind of laid it out in a framework where it's impossible for them to measure, or maybe they haven't yeah. lined out what they're exactly they're going to measure. That is like my biggest pet peeve. Like Johnny will improve his skills at making friends on four out of five consecutive opportunities. Right. You're like, what? What does that uh, right. mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very vague. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, well, thank This has been so interesting. So you are currently writing a book or about to release your book. Is that right? I am. Yes. I'm, I'm writing a book because I, I do, I do fundamentally believe that parents should not have to, uh, hire a lawyer in order to get their child uh, to be appropriately educated or to receive the appropriate education. Um, so the book is really to hope, hopefully empower the parents to, you know, advocate with a little bit more, um, I guess a little bit more information because it's almost workbook style with specific questions with that are asked with you know blank lines to take notes so that they can then take that book to an IEP meeting or use it to prepare for a due process hearing if it unfortunately goes that far and then they can create their own roadmap and and prepare their own arguments and or questions for the meeting. Oh that's great. So when is what is the name of your book and when is it coming out? So the name of the book is Empowered uh using real case examples to look deeper into IEP management uh which is you know kind of how it sounds. I look at cases from 2018, not all the cases, just ones that I thought were were significant that would have um how do I say this? That would have an effect on you no matter what jurisdiction you live in. So it's not just for Pennsylvania residents, it's for anyone. And then I go through the case and I, you know, give a summary of the case and then give specific questions at the end of how parents can use that case to analyze their own situation if they feel like they're in their own situation or a similar situation. And the book comes out in October, uh, the first Tuesday in October. I'm sorry, I've, I think it's the 8th. I don't have the date in front of me. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been very, very informative and helpful. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on today. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. And this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. 
TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.